The topic for today is the transfiguration. The transfiguration. That's the next major event of our Lord's life that we'll be looking at. Um, and so one of the most important questions that the gospel seeks to answer is the question of who is Jesus Christ, right? And, and we see that throughout the gospel, different people struggle with this question. Even John the Baptist at one point sent his disciples to, to Jesus asking him, are you the one who is to come or shall we find someone else or shall we look for another, right? But make no mistake, Jesus is very clear on who he is. So through his own words, Jesus said in John 5, 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And in John 10, 30, he says, I and the Father are one. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father, he says in John 14, 9. And also in Matthew 9, 6, he says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to a paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And the paralytic rose and walked home. Everyone standing there would have known that only God has the authority to forgive sins. And Jesus claims that he has that authority. Christ made many claims of his deity throughout the Gospels. Today we will see on the Mount of Transfiguration three different testimonies, three undeniable proofs that Jesus is who he says he is. Okay, with, with that, let's look at, uh, we'll be reading through Luke, the gospel according to Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36. And on the handout, I, I included the account from all three gospels, um, synoptic gospels, because we'll be looking at some of the differences and similarities between the three writers. Um, and I think that's helpful for us to get a, a clear understanding of the, of the um, event. Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were, with, were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And he was, as he was saying these things, the cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So to set the, uh, to set the context for this event, Peter had recently confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus responds by teaching the disciples what that means, what it means to be the Christ of God, that he must suffer many things, be rejected by the spiritual leaders of Israel, be killed, and then ultimately be raised again. And then he tells the disciples what that means for them, for those who want to be followers of Christ. He says this in Luke 9, verse 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And that section ends with this prophecy from Jesus. But I tell you, truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. In all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the transfiguration account follows immediately after this statement from Jesus. In fact, we believe that the transfiguration is the fulfillment of that statement, and we'll see why in a minute, in a moment. So when Luke says, now, about eight days after these saints, these are the saints he was referring to. Um, and it's worthwhile to note here that both Matthew and Mark stated that the transfiguration happened after six days, whereas Luke wrote it happened about eight days, right? So that, that is not really a contradiction. Um, Luke's reference is, is less precise. It's more of a summary statement, kind of like him saying how we would say about a week later. So he was giving a, um, a, an estimate, whereas uh, Matthew and Mark uh, were more precise with their timing. So then we see that Jesus took only, uh, took only three disciples with him, Peter, John, and James. Why, why only these three? <laughs> I'm not sure about favorites, but what do you guys think? Why, why Peter, John, and James? Yeah, that could, that could be. If you recall, so there were three special events that Jesus took these same three disciples with him. One of them was witnessing, Je- witnessing Jesus raise Jairus' daughter from, from the dead. Um, the second event was here at, at his transfiguration. And the third one we will see next week is in the Garden of Gethsemane. So in all three events, he took these three same disciples. So, so obviously, there's, there's some, um, he, he specifically chosen them for some purpose. Um, in a sense, they were like his inner circle. Some people would consider um, they were especially close to Jesus, and perhaps um, some commentators think that he was trying to prepare them to be leaders of the church after um, after his resurrection, right? So those three: Peter, James, and John. And later on, we'll see that they are leadership um, roles in the church in Acts. So we know that these three uh, disciples were specifically chosen by Jesus. Um, and it's interesting to know here, too, that when Moses went up Mount Sinai in Exodus 24, he also took how many people? Three with him. Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. So that's, that was an interesting parallel. So, um, so they, they went up this mountain to pray. Does anyone know what mountain this is that this ha- occurred on? I'm sorry? Possibly? Probably not. So we don't know. The Bible doesn't say, right? So it's, it's an unnamed mountain. Um, but what, what we call today is the Mount of Transfiguration because of what, what occurred on there. But the Bible never tells us what exact mountain it was. Um, it's never identified in the Bible. But, but geographically, many scholars believe that it was actually Mount Hermon, which was close to Caesarea of Philippi, which is the area where they think Jesus was at during this time. That would be the closest mountain to that area. But we don't know for sure. Verse 29 continues, and it says, As he was praying, the appearance of his face altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Matthew says it this way, He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. 
And Mark was even more specific, saying he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So I thought, I thought that was an interesting description. They're so white that no one could bleach them. Um, so Luke, Luke did not use the word transfigure like the other two, but he was basically describing the same event. And the Greek word for transfigure is metamorpho-o. Metamorpho-o. So what, what word does that sound like in English? Metamorphosis, right? Yeah, metamorphosis. So, so it suggests the idea of a transformation, like a change of form or nature or some, uh, of something. So it's not just saying that his face was reflecting the light from the sun, but rather his face shone like the sun itself. It was not just a visible external change, but one that proceeds from the inside and changes the whole person. So when you think of, when you think of a shining face, what do you think of? Who have you seen that? Moses, right? So Exodus 34 says, in Exodus 34 verse 29, says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. So Moses' face was shining after being in the presence of God. But his alteration was not comparable to Jesus, right? Because with Moses, his face reflected the glory of God, whereas with Jesus, he was the source of glory, right? Jesus was not reflecting the Father's glory. He was revealing his own glory, and John testified to this in his gospel. In chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Peter describes this moment in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we, did not, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths, but when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This glory that Jesus was revealing, he has had from eternity past. Right? John 17, 5, when in, in his um, high priestly prayer, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So the glory that, that the disciples were witnessing from Jesus right now is, is the glory that he's always had from eternity past to that moment. He's just it's been veiled in his incarnation, but here for this brief moment, for this brief moment, Peter, John, and James had a glimpse of the unveiled, pre-incarnate glory of Jesus Christ manifested in the, in the form of overwhelming, dazzling light, right? And this glory, his glory, testifies to Jesus' claim of deity, right? His own glory testifies to that. So seeing his glory also fulfills the prophecy that we, we mentioned earlier in Luke chapter 9, verse 27, where it says, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So now we know that he's talking about the, some standing here. He's talking about Peter, James, and John, right? And, and they see the kingdom of God. Well, Peter says, um, Peter interpreted this moment as a preview of the earthly kingdom, where he says, in that same verse earlier, um, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when, he re- for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So three of the disciples saw a manifestation of the kingdom before they died through the glory of Christ. Because he is the king and on earth is his kingdom. And so in his glorification, in that, in that little moment, they were seeing a preview of what would come in the future when he is fully, when he comes back in his full glorification. So in the midst of all this, two men appeared, right, and started having a conversation with Jesus. The Bible identifies these two men as Moses and Elijah. And Luke is the only one that tells us what they were talking about, all right? So Luke says that they were talking about Jesus' departure. And, um, and the interesting, interestingly, the Greek word here for departure is exodus, right? Um, again, there, there's these parallels um, that we see. So I believe Luke's choice of the word is to recall in us the exodus from Egypt, right? So the implication here is that they weren't simply just talking about Jesus' death and departure from this world, but really he's talking about um, just as God used Moses to free his people of Israel from from the bondage through the exodus of Egypt, Christ would bring salvation to his people by freeing them from a greater bondage, the oppression of sin and death through, the exodus, through his own exodus from this world. But why Moses and Elijah? Why not Abraham or David or Isaiah or any of the other major Old Testament saints? Why did we see Moses and Elijah on this mountain with Jesus? Yeah, some commentators, yeah, that's one reason. Um, yeah, yeah, that's another one too. In Revelation, right, <laughs> it talks about that. Um, there, there's a lot of uh, reasons, but I think one of them, uh, the one I would always share, which I think I believe is, is um, important, is that they, they believe it has to do with the Old, Testament, Old Testament's testimony to Christ. So we know that Moses represents the law, right? And Elijah kind of represents the prophets. Like he, at one point, he was like the head of the school of prophets. He's like the, um, the, the, the big prophet that, that fought with the, the Baal, you know, the prophets of Baal. And so he, in a sense, he was like a, a hero of the Old Testament saints, right? And so both of them talking to Jesus about his crucifixion and his resurrection gives us a symbolic picture of the Old Testament testimony of Christ. They both point to Christ. The law and the prophets both point to Christ. But not only that, but they are fulfilled in Christ. Right? So having all three of them there um, would, bring to, would bring to memory uh, of that. So it says in Romans 3, verse 21 to 22, it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
And then in Luke 24, we see Jesus appearing to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So the law and the prophets all point to Christ. And Christ is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. So, while all this was happening, what were the disciples doing? What was their reaction on that mountain? Well, first we see in verse 32, uh, it says, that Peter and those who were with him fell asleep. Right? So at first glance, I mean, that seems kind of inappropriate response, considering everything that's happening, right? Were, were, were they bored? Or maybe they were just tired from their ministry? <laughs> yeah, exa- yeah, exactly. So, in th- their response was, was likely due to being in the presence of the glory of Christ, right? They're, they're not bored up there. <laughs> so, in Isaiah 6, we see Isaiah, in the presence of God, he's, he cried out, woe is me. Or other translations, that it would say, I am ruined or I am being undone. And then in Revelation 1, 17, John saw, John saw Jesus in his exalted glory and immediately fell at his feet as though dead. Right? So I don't think any of us have, have experienced this firsthand, but we have the Bible to tell us that being in the presence of the glory of God has a profound physical impact on people. Physical and I would say probably emotional impact as well. So it's no different on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? I believe the glory of Christ was so overwhelming that it must have exhausted the disciples to sleep to, to the point of sleep, right? But eventually, they woke up. They woke up and saw all that was happening. And Peter, being Peter, said, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for Jesus, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, and, and Luke gives us additional information saying that Peter spoke not knowing what he said. And Mark added that Peter was afraid and didn't know what to say. But he said something anyways, right? So, I mean, there's some of us who, when we, we don't know what to say. We just don't say anything, but not Peter. He, he had to say something. So he said that. So, so why did Peter say these things? What do you think was going through his head? Yeah? The tent, tabernacle? There's a, there's a link there. Well, at the very least, it seems Peter's message was this. It is good that we're here. Let us stay here for a while. Right? That's why he wants to set up tents, because he wants to stay there on that mountain with Christ and, these, and Elijah and Moses. Right? Peter was content being with the Lord on that mountaintop. But he is wrong, forgetting that Jesus is on mission. Jesus is on earth for a reason. And we'll see from this point on, Luke will say multiple times in his gospel that Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. Like he, he, has, he is determined to see the Father's will be done in Jerusalem. So he has no time to set up tents and hang out in a, on a mountain, right? So Peter was, was wrong with that. Um, some commentators believe that Peter's idea of building three tents may be because he was thinking of the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles which is a feast of celebration associated with the coming kingdom and Christ's reign on earth, described in Zechariah 14. 
So perhaps seeing Christ's glory, he's thinking, oh, maybe he's, he's ready to set up his kingdom now. This is the beginning, the inauguration of the kingdom. But he was also wrong with that point too because he forgets that before glory comes suffering. Right? He forgets that Christ must suffer first before he can set up his kingdom. So that, that, that is wrong as well. But I think Peter's biggest mistake in making this statement was that his, his downgrading of Christ's glory. So you, if you recall, he had just made a great confession not too long ago. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And not only that, but he's currently witnessing Christ's glory beaming out of him. Yet, he offers to make Jesus a tent, just like the tent he would make for Moses and the tent that he would make for Elijah. Three equal tents. So in some sense, he's putting Jesus on the same level as Moses and Elijah by, by, by even offering that, right? So we know that Moses and Elijah were great saints of the Old Testament, and, and the Jews would have seen them as heroes, and, and there probably was some temptation to worship them. So you recall in Deuteronomy 34, where was Moses buried? No one knows. It says God is the one that buried him. And, and it, says, um, it says God was the one that buried him when he died, and no one knows to this place his burial site. And the Bible doesn't, doesn't tell you why he did that, but why do you think he did that? It doesn't say, it doesn't tell us, but exactly, yeah. Because, I mean, some scholars suggested that God did that to prevent them from setting up a shrine or a place of worship at the grave of Moses. Because these people would have probably worshipped Moses, having seen everything that he did, right? So, I mean, the Jews looked up to him. So imagine seeing him on this mountain, along with Elijah, and then Jesus standing next to them. They would probably more be more likely to worship the other two than Jesus. And so, you know, um, so Peter setting these tents up with, with thinking, wow, Jesus is next to Moses and Elijah. That's so cool. Let's set up tents for all three of them, putting them on the same level. And probably thinking that Jesus is cool being with them rather than the other way around, right? But Peter's wrong in that because we know that Moses and Elijah are in no way equal to Jesus, right? Jesus is God. He is infinitely greater in power and glory than any prophet, even Moses and Elijah. So, it's no wonder that while Peter was saying these things, that he did not understand, God the Father interrupted him. Okay, it says in verse 34, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. God interrupts Peter in two ways. First, a cloud comes down and overshadowed them. Again, this is the same cloud we have seen God manifested his presence throughout the Exodus. Right, it is the same cloud that Moses entered when he met with God on Mount Sinai. The same cloud that covered the tent of meeting when the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And it's the same cloud that filled Solomon's temple. It is what the Jews would call the Shekinah glory, which is the glory cloud of the presence of God. Right, seeing it, they would know that this, this is the visible representation of God's presence, that God is there. And so that's why they were afraid. But God did not just come 
he actually spoke. Right? He says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. If you recall, this is almost identical to the words that, that God spoke at his baptism when he said, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. In both instances, God testified that indeed Jesus is his son. But not only that, but this is his beloved son, his chosen one, one with whom he is well pleased. We see these similar words in Isaiah 42, verse 1. It says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit, spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nation. Hearing this from God should be a major comfort for the disciples, right? To know that even though soon they will witness this, even though the spiritual leaders of Israel will reject Jesus and the Romans will execute him, God the Father accepts him and is well pleased with him. So I think um, God, God allowed that to not only testify to Jesus, but also be an encouragement, a comfort to, to the disciples who were there, who would soon witness the sufferings of Christ. So, it's no wonder that God says at the end of verse 35, listen to him. Both the law and the prophets have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So listen to him. Listen to Jesus. And with those words spoken, Jesus was found standing alone. Verse 36, and when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So imagine yourself on this mountain, right? You have Jesus standing there, shining like the sun. Moses and Elijah were there. Um, then God comes in the form of a cloud, and then he speaks, right? This is, this is an epic scene. If you can imagine it, this is like, this is epic. It is amazing. It was, it was awesome to be in that, in, that, in that time, in that presence. And then in an instant, everything disappears. And all that's left is Jesus standing there, alone. And he, and, and he is the center of the disciples' attention. So you have all these things going on, and everything disappears, and all you have left is Jesus. All that's left is Jesus. Moses and Elijah vanishes, but Jesus remains. The law and the prophets have been fulfilled in Christ. Jesus alone in some sense, this is how the Christian life should be lived, right? Singular Ferguson in, in the book puts it this way, for the whole of the Christian life, in a sense, can be reduced to this. If we are going to live it well and to the glory of God, then Jesus alone must be the one who fills our horizon. Jesus should be the center of our attention. So the transfiguration shows us who Jesus really is through three testimonies. His own glory, the law and the prophets, and lastly, the God, the Father himself, testifies to who Jesus is. So, um, these have four takeaways from this. So, we see that the Mount of Transfiguration confirms that Jesus is truly Christ, the Son of the living God. We also see that the future kingdom is a reality. Right, because we, get, we got a preview of it through Christ and his glory. So it's coming. 
we also see that Jesus is superior to Moses and Elijah, right? They, they all vanished. God only spoke to, about Jesus, not Moses or Elijah. And all that's left is, is, is Christ at the end. And um, I believe it served as a purpose, uh, as an encouragement to disciples. Because if you recall before this event, Christ was telling them about his Passion Week. He was telling them, I have to go suffer and die. And so you can imagine, they were probably discouraged hearing that. So this, this is a sense of uh, encouragement for them, as, as they will see, soon see um, the sufferings of Christ come about. So that concludes my lesson. A little early, so we can take some questions. Yeah. Yes, Carol. Yeah, I agree. Yes, you're right. I, I, I believe so too. That this, this event could be also an encouragement for Christ. Yeah. And we'll see, I mean, we'll see next week in the garden that Christ needs encouragement. Right? Because what he's, what he's about to do is something that I don't think we'll ever understand, honestly. We'll never understand the scope and the magnitude of his sorrow. Um, so yeah, I think this could be an encouragement to Christ. We know that Jesus loved his disciples, right? He really does love them, and so yeah, he, I'm sure he enjoyed being with them. Yes, Phil. That's a good point. He didn't just take one or two disciples, right? He took three, which is the maximum, right? 
Yes. Yes, sir. I, I believe it's revealed because it's in the gospel. This is this is the revelation of it, it the, the account being written down. Um, I don't think it, it says specifically then they revealed this to the disciples. But obviously, I mean, um, Luke, uh, Mark weren't there. Luke weren't there, and, and so the the three the the three primary eyewitnesses, Peter, James, and John. We eventually revealed it to the rest of the disciples and, and all the rest of the followers, and then it's recorded in the Gospels. So yeah, it, it was later revealed. But yeah, at this point, and oftentimes you see Christ telling people not to reveal certain things because it's not time yet, right? It's, it's, not, it's in the timing of the Father. It's not time for them to, to realize that Christ is the Messiah because with that revelation, it could cause people to get in the way of his mission, like maybe stop him from you know, hey, you're not going to Jerusalem. We're going to set you up as king right now. Um, so for, the, for that reason, probably others, Christ tells them not to reveal it yet until the time is, is right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And I can relate to that. I mean, if I saw something like that, I don't know if I could stay quiet for very long. And we will see that next week, actually. In the garden, we will see the climax of his humanity. I think in his sorrow. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll dive deeper into that next week. But yeah. This is a good glimpse of his deity on the transfiguration. Okay. We're a little early, but I know you guys love to hang out and fellowship, so. Uh, you know what? Let's, let's pray uh, to close and will be dismissed. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this account in the gospel of your son's transfiguration. Father, we know that sometimes um, knowledge is one thing, but experience is, is another. And so um, just experiencing this and, and seeing Christ's glory helps us with, with our faith. Um, Father, I, I pray that you would help us um, with our faith. Um, that you would use the gospel to, to grow us in our faith and our love for Christ. Um, I pray that 
that you will help us to be diligent followers of Christ, that we would put, put, um, put on our own cross daily, and that we would um, strive to, to follow in his footsteps. Lord, we thank you for this lesson today. We pray that it would penetrate our hearts, it would transform our lives, and make us more Christ-like for your glory. In his name we pray. Amen.